All right, Paradise Lost, Book 4. As you remember, Satan has discovered by asking Uriel where man is and has is making his way to earth. And as he lands on earth, we see around line 18, horror and doubt distract troubled his thoughts, and from the bottom stir the hell within him, for within him hell he brings, and round about him, nor from hell one step no more than from himself can fly by change of place. Now conscience wakes despair that slumbered wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be worse. So Milton, the epic narrator here, is telling us that uh, uh, Satan has physically left hell, but internally he hasn't. He carries hell within him wherever he goes. And again, think of the uh, the echo of Mephistopheles in Dr. Faustus, which way I fly am hell, myself am hell. Um, and Satan has a soliloquy here. Now we saw in the opening books of Paradise Lost that Satan was cast as something of an epic hero. And here, with this soliloquy, Milton is casting him as something of a, a tragic hero. Uh, He's got a soliloquy the same way that Hamlet or Macbeth or Othello would have. Um, And the, well, it starts out, O thou that with surprising, surpassing glory crowned, lookst from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads, to thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name, O son. Now, the wind-up there, he's talking to, to thou, it sounds like he's talking to God at first, the, the, with, surpass, you know, with surpassing glory crowned, uh, the God of this new world, uh, but it's not, it's just the sun. He's looking at the, the brightness and beauty of the sun, but he is thinking about his rebellion in heaven, uh, that you know how he was glorious, line forty, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. Ah, wherefore? He deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was in that bright eminence, and with his good upbraided none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise? the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks. How do? Yet all his good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high, I stained subjection, and thought one step higher would set me highest. So this is very honest, and this is very different from the epic speeches that he's been giving in hell. This is self-reflective, inward-turning, again, like a Shakespearean soliloquy. And he's saying that, you know, I, I rebelled, but there was no real reason for it. It was my own ambition. You know, I thought that he set me so high among the angels, if I just go one step higher, I'll be the highest. I'll be God. Um, and he even asks, says, oh, had his powerful destiny ordained me some inferior angel? It, it, maybe if I hadn't been such a great angel, I wouldn't have fallen. 
but then he reverses himself. Again, this is very much like the Shakespearean soliloquy. It's the following the pattern of his thought. This is not the kind of, of again, the bold epic speeches we got in books one and two. Uh, he said, I would have been happier if I'd been a lower angel. He, goes, he said, and I wouldn't have fallen. He says, yet, why not? Uh, you know, others of the lesser angels, angels fell. I might have fallen too. And he asks himself, line uh, 66, Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? Thou hadst. Whom hadst thou then, or what, to accuse? But heaven's free love dealt equally to all. Be then his love accursed, since love or hate to me alike it deals eternal woe. Nay, cursed be thou, since against his thy will chose freely what it now so justly rues. So you can see the back and forth, you know, cursed be God's love. No, I'm the one who's wrong, in the wrong. Me, miserable. Which way shall I fly infinite wrath and infinite despair? Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. So it's not only, he, he's reflecting what the, the narrator had said earlier, that he, wherever he goes is hell. Uh, it, it, because his, it's, hell is a state of mind. It's not a physical place for, for Milton in Paradise Lost. And he says that he's line 91, only supreme in misery, such joy ambitions finds. But say I could repent and could obtain by act of grace my former state. How soon would height recall high thoughts? How soon unsay what feigned submission swore? El ease would recant vows made in pain as violent and void, for never can true reconcilement grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so deep. So he thinks even if he could get back into heaven, it would just start the cycle all over again. He literally cannot imagine a genuine repentance. He can think, well, if God let me back into heaven and gave me grace, but he can't imagine himself changing. Uh, remember, change is something that he has said he, he doesn't like. Um, and he said that going back would just lead to a worse relapse. And so having said all that, he concludes on line 108, so farewell hope, and with hope, farewell fear, farewell remorse. All good to me is lost. Evil, be thou my good. By thee, at least, divided empire with heaven's king I hold by thee, and more than half perhaps will reign, as man ere long, and this new world shall know. So he ends... Well, you know, if I if I can't be good, I'll be really, really bad. Now, this is a, again a, a shift in the characterization of Satan. He isn't quite as epic and impressive as we saw in book one. He's in book one and book two, and now he's still, I think, uh, impressive and even sympathetic here. He again is much more like a a, a tragic hero, uh, but we can see a. a diminishing of his character here, and we'll see that that is a trend that follows uh, throughout Paradise Lost. Now, as he's doing all this, um, Uriel 
uh, can see him and sees that he is uh, can see the, the physical manifestations of this soliloquy uh, that he's getting all emotional and passionate and it says that well that's not what uh, uh, this is line 125 yes Uriel once warned whose eye pursued him down the way he went and on the Assyrian mount saw him disfigured more than could befall spirit of happy sort his gestures fierce he marked and mad demeanor then alone as he supposed all unobserved unseen so uriel is able to see now that he was tricked that this was not a good angel that, that uh, spirits of happy sort wouldn't you know soliloquize like this um, and then we get the description of eden now eden in for milton is the uh, the area, the kind of the country that uh, Adam and Eve live in. And paradise is the garden where they live. Paradise is a walled garden on the top of a mountain in Eden. Um, And the description of it starts around line 133. Uh, It it keeps rising. You know, Eden, we're delicious paradise, now nearer, crowns with her enclosures green, uh, a few lines later, overhead, up grew insuperable height of loftiest shade. Then a little farther down, yet higher than their tops, the venturous walls of paradise. So it's this high country, and it's on a high, paradise is on a high mountain, and above that is a high wall. And then line 146, and higher than that wall, a circling roll of goodliest trees, loaden with fair fruit. Uh, so it's this kind of ascent. It goes up and up and up uh, in the description of it. Uh, now, Satan sees this, and uh, he knows there's a, a front gate, but he's, you know, being Satan, he's not going to go in the front door, uh, and he jumps over the wall, line 181. At one slight bound, high overleaped, all bound of hill or highest wall, and sheer within, lights on his feet, then we get an epic simile as when a prowling wolf whom hunger drives to seek new haunt for prey watching where shepherds pin their flocks at eve in huddled coats amid the field secure leaps o'er the fence with ease into the fold so the first part of this simile is satan leaps in like a prowling wolf jumping the fence to get in among the, the, the sheeps and uh, with the, the shepherds are trying to protect. Again, that's obviously relevant to what Satan's doing here. Or, and we have one of these double epic similes, or as a thief bent to uphoard the cash of some rich burger whose substantial doors, cross-barred and bolted fast, fear no assault, and at the window climbs, or, or the tiles, so clomb this first grand thief into God's fold. So the same way a thief, you know, the front door is, is you know, has locks and bars and alarm systems. So the the thief just slips in the window. Uh, and both those, a prowling wolf is, uh, is a figure of Satan, a metaphor for Satan in the Bible. Uh, and that's something that's just all appetite. Uh, a thief is more deliberate and sneakier the wolf just kind of is jumping over because he's hungry. The thief is planning out. Uh, so we get, a, you know, a, again, several different images that help us understand how Satan is, 
is working here. And he jumps up onto the trees at the very top of paradise and sits like a cormorant. That's a, a, a bird, a, a voracious bird. And he just happens to light on the tree of life, but he doesn't really realize what it is. He just sits on it. Um, and then there's a description starting around line um, 223 of uh, Eden itself. Southward through Eden went a river large, nor changed his course, but through the shaggy hill passed underneath, engulfed. For God had thrown that mountain, as his garden mold, high raised, upon the rapid currents, which, through veins of porous earth with kindly thirst updrawn, rose a fresh fountain, and uh, with many a rill watered the garden, thence united, fell down the steep glade and met the nether flood, which from his darksome passage now appears, and now divided into four main streams, runs diverse, wandering many a famous realm and country. So get the image of this here. Uh, again, paradise is on the top of a mountain, and there's a river that runs underground beneath that mountain because God kind of put the, you know, smashed the mountain or placed the mountain there right uh, over the river. But then the water from that river, which is underground, seeps up through the mountain, through the porous earth, and it comes out as a fountain at the top of the mountain, and that cascades down. You have waterfalls that go down, and that waterfall meets the the main course of the river uh, as it goes uh, on further. So that's the um, um, the, the geography of paradise, uh, which again will be significant later. Now he's looking. Satan is looking at all of these people, but he he sees. Let's look at the moment where he discovers Adam and Eve. This is around line uh, two eighty eight. To a far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect with native honor clad in naked majesty, seemed lords of all. Uh, so he sees the uh, Adam and Eve. They are in their naked majesty. There's no, no clothing in, in paradise. Um, and he says, The image of their glorious maker shone, truth, wisdom, sanctitude, severe and pure, severe but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men, though both not equal as their sex not equal seemed, for contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace, he for God only, she for God in him. So uh, Milton has very traditional ideas of gender roles here, right? Uh, they're not equal. They have different uh, uh, capacities. Uh, the man is about contemplation and valor, so thinking and courage. And she is for softness and sweet, attractive grace. Uh, or the other way he puts it is that he for God only, she for God in him. So he is, has his mind on God. She has her mind on God, but through him. He is her kind of intercessor to that. Um, and look at the descriptions that we get. The, there's very little physical description, but he, act, look, he says about Adam, his fair large front and eyes sublime declared absolute rule, and hyacinthine locks round from his parted forelock manly hung clustering, but not beneath his shoulders broad. 
So we get the, you know, he, has, he is, looks commanding and with his eye, and he has this uh, curly hair, but it only goes to his shoulders. Then we get the description of Eve, and first of all, look how much longer it is. She, as a veil down to the slender waist, her unadorned golden tresses wore disheveled, but in wanton ringlets waved as the vine curls her tendrils, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway, and by her yielded, by him best received, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. So it has the description of her hair, and it's much more extravagant. It's not just to the shoulders, it's all the way down past her waist. And he describes it, it's it's beautiful, unadorned, golden, disheveled. You know, it's not, it's it's wild, it's untamed. He says it's in wanton ringlets. Now, wanton, as your your note will tell you, means um, unrestrained. But usually, the, for us, the word wanton has moral connotations. It means you know, sexually impure. Now, that's not what it means here, but you have to kind of remind yourself that that's not what it means here. Uh, again, I think Milton is as he so often does, playing little head games with his reader. Uh, he compares the hair to the vines of Eden, um, says, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway. So this is, uh, you know, the, the tendrils, the curving, the, the wantonness, the disheveledness of her hair implies that it, it is, has subjection to Adam. I mean, she's the, she's the woman. She's supposed to be subjection. But it requires a gentle sway. So you, it's, it's, it's not under a harsh uh, control, but it has to be gentle. And her subjection is by her yielded and by him best received. Uh, so, wait, does he, does she yield because she wants to or because he tells her to? It seems to be completely mutual. By her yielded, by him best received. It's yielded with coy submission. So it's submissive, but it's also coy. It's also uh, shyly, you know, playing coy with him, uh, with modest pride. Well, that's an oxymoron. What do you mean, modest pride? and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. She's kind of playing hard to get. Uh, You can see just from this description, Eve is a much more complicated and I think much more interesting character than Adam. Uh, Now the narrator has just told us that Adam is the superior one and Eve is the inferior one. But then he goes on to give descriptions which imply exactly the opposite. Eve seems like the fascinating, beautiful, important one, and Adam is the is playing second fiddle. Uh, all right, so we see Adam and Eve, and they go, line three twenty one. So hand in hand they passed, and they're stopping for their evening meal. Their their supper fruits they to their supper fruits they fell. Uh, and got a lot of irony in that. Uh, they're eating the fruits, and even the verb, they, they didn't eat, they fell to their fruits. Um, Milton is again kind of reminding us of what's going to happen with the very careful choice of language. Um, and look at Satan's reaction to this around line 
358. O hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? So his this is the same or very similar to his reaction when he saw the the world. Remember he landed on the globe and he looked in where the stairs went down and saw the, the beauty of the whole universe and wonder seized but much more envy seized. So seeing the, the beauty of Adam and Eve here only makes him grieve. Um, and he, he calls them, line 370, happy, but for so happy, ill-secured, long to continue. And this high seat, your heaven, ill-fenced, for heaven uh, to, keep, uh, to keep out such foe as now is entered, yet no purposed foe to you whom I could pity, thus forlorn, though I unpitied. So now he's feeling, well, I, I could almost pity you, but not, again, that's like in soliloquy earlier, he, he talks himself out of it very quickly. This is line um, 381. Hell shall unfold to entertain you to her widest gates. So hell is going to open up and make room for you. And look at uh, 388. And should I at your harmless innocent melt, as I do, Yet public reason just, honor and empire, with revenge enlarged by conquering this new world, compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So he admits that, you know, the, as the, your harmless innocence makes me melt, as it does, and still he has these public reasons just, his empire, his honor, he, he's going to go ahead and do this, even though he knows it's the wrong thing to do. Uh, so again, Satan is getting increasingly less attractive as a figure. He's, he's doing the wrong thing, though he, he's not trying to justify it now even. He's just saying, I know this is wrong, but it's what, it will help me. So then we get a the first speech from Adam. He addresses to Eve, line uh, 411. Sole partner and sole part of all these joys, dearer thyself than all. Uh, it's interesting, the first thing he says is praise of Eve and how Again, she is dearer than anything else to him. Um, and he recapitulates the command that they've been given, that they can uh, eat, eat anything here except from the, uh, the, the, tree in the, of, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, if that happens, they will die, and they don't really even know what death is. And Adam says, um, line 433, then let us think not hard our one easy prohibition, who enjoy free leave as so large to all things else and choice unlimited of manifold delights. So he's reminding them of the, the rule, but says it's not a big deal. You know, we have everything else that's not, you know, it'll be easy to do that. Uh, and Eve replies to him, uh, you know, it says, we to him indeed all praises owe. But then she starts to talk about something else. Around line 450, she says, That day I oft remember when from sleep I first awaked. So Eve is recounting the story of her own creation here. Or her, of course, she didn't see her own creation. She's just talking about the moment when she woke up. And we'll see later in Paradise Lost, in, in book eight, Adam is going to tell a parallel story of his uh, waking up and after being created. Um, 
So she gets up and she sees everything is beautiful. She hears the murmuring waters and she goes to look at it. Uh, line 456. I thither went with unexperienced thought and laid me down on the grassy bank to look into the clear, smooth lake that seemed to me another sky. As I bent down to look, just opposite, a shape within the watery gleam appeared, bending to look on me. I started back. It started back. But pleased, I soon returned. Pleased it returned, as soon, with answering looks of sympathy and love. There I had fixed mine eye till now, and pined with vain desire, had not a voice thus warned me. So, this is, I mean, this has to recall to your mind the idea of uh, Narcissus. Uh, she sees her reflection and starts, she doesn't realize what it is, she looks at it, and it's so beautiful, she's just gazing on it. And would have been, except she hears a voice, which must be the voice of God, what thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature, is thyself. With thee it came and go. But follow me, and I will bring thee where no shadow stays thy coming, and thy soft embraces. He whose image thou art, him thou shalt enjoy inseparably thine. To him shalt bear multitudes like thyself. So he's going to take her to a better image, you know, something not just a, a, a picture, but an actual other person that she, that no, where no shadow uh, or reflection will stay her coming. Uh, and you will be able to make multitudes like yourself, uh, not just one image, but many, many children in your image. So the voice leads her to Adam. And uh, but look at what she says here. Um, what could I do but follow straight, invisibly thus led? Um, Eve doesn't it kind of, you know, I did, well, what else could I do? I just kind of went along with it. It's not even it's like her decision. She just kind of follows. And so she sees the uh, sees Adam, fair indeed and tall under a plantain, yet methought less fair, less winning soft, less amiably mild than that smooth, watery image. Back I turned. So she sees Adam and says, yeah, that's nice, but, you know, that image in the water was really prettier. I, I think I'm going to go back and look at that. And Adam calls out to her, you know, return, fair Eve, whom flyest thou? Uh, so he has, he has to run and call her back. And uh, it says line uh, 488, with that, thy gentle hand seized mine. I yielded. And from that time see how beauty is excelled by manly grace and wisdom, which alone is truly fair. So she's, um, Adam grabs her, you know, grabs her by the hand. And notice uh, almost every time we see Adam and Eve, they're walking hand in hand. They're like, you know, one of those annoying high school couples who hold hands all the time. Um, he, he seizes her and she yields to him. And now sees, well, your manful grace is, is more important. Um, and again, we get a soliloquy from Satan, line 505. Sight hateful, sight tormenting, thus those two imparadised in one another's arms. So he see, again, he sees this and it's only bitterness for him. The, the beauty of it only makes him jealous. But he picks up on what Adam said, line 515. Says, knowledge forbidden? 
suspicious, reasonless. Why should their Lord envy them that? Can it be sin to know? Can it be death? And do they only stand by ignorance? Is that their happy state, the proof of their obedience and their faith? O fair foundation laid one to build their ruin. Hence I will excite their minds with more desire to know. So he sees, oh, you know, I, I see a, a problem here. The God's telling them that they shouldn't know things, but knowledge is good. I can sell them on that. He's already developing his, his plan. And he says he's going to go off, and, and as he says, I may meet some wandering spirit of heaven um, that uh, he can get more information from. Uh, so he goes off and says, uh, Live while ye may, ye happy pair. Enjoy till I return short pleasure for long woes or to succeed. Uh, again, Satan's getting a lot more directly villainous as the story goes on. All right, now we get to uh, the angels who are guarding the gates of paradise, and the lead, their leader is Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is the angel who will uh, announce to uh, the Virgin Mary that she will give birth to, to Christ. Uh, here he is, one of the archangels, around line 550. Uh, Gabriel sat chief of the angelic guards, awaiting night. Around him exercised heroic games, the unarmed youth of heaven. Remember, that's exactly what the fallen angels were doing in hell, their heroic Olympic games. And then Uriel comes down, gliding through the even on a sunbeam, swift as a shooting star. So he comes down and he tells him, uh, you know, I saw this this angel, I thought it was a good angel, but then when I saw him on earth, he was soliloquizing and getting all emotional and passionate, and I knew he was a bad, bad guy. So he says, line... 575, one of the banished crew, I fear, hath ventured from the deep to raise new troubles. And uh, Gabriel's like, well, well, we've been here at this gate the whole time and nobody came in. And I think, well, you know, maybe he got in some other way, uh, but you need to find him. And then uh, line 590, Uriel to his charge returned on that bright beam whose point now raised before him slope downward to the sun now fallen beneath the Azores. Whether the prime orb, incredible how swift, had thither rolled diurnal, or le the, this less voluble earth, by shorter flight to, uh, to the cast, had left him there. Uh, so the idea is that there's this sunbeam that uh, Uriel kind of glided down to get to earth and as he was talking the sun was setting so when it's time to go back the sun is now instead of sloping down towards earth it's sloping from earth down towards the sun and he can slide down that same sunbeam back to the sun uh, and also notice that uh, again Milton doesn't say whether it's the sun or the earth that is moved he, he's being cagey about that um so we come, it's night, and now glowed the firmament with living sapphires. And Adam has another speech starting around line 610 um, and tells them, uh, God hath set labor and rest as day and night to men successive. Uh, so Adam is very, you notice he's always kind of talking about the, the, the rules here, before the rule that God said we shouldn't eat of the fruit, and now here's the way as God has set up. There's day and night, and we work at the day, and we go to sleep at night. Um, and during the day, we have work to do. We have to tend the garden. 
And he says, uh, line four, six twenty-seven. He says, with branches overgrown, this this uh, uh, garden that mock our scant manuring and require more hands than ours to lop their wanton growth. I remember wanton was the very word that was used to describe uh, Eve's hair. It's also compared to vines. So the, uh, Adam seems overwhelmed by this. The, 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 the growth of nature is just kind of out of control. We, we, the two of us aren't enough to kind of keep this garden in neat, proper order. Uh, it, it's this wanton, luxuriant, overabundant growth. Um, and we'll see that, that attitude uh, in, in Adam. Uh, uh, again, the, he doesn't like that extravagant, luxurious stuff. He wants everything neat and tidy. And then Eve has a little speech that starts around line 639, uh, which is just a little, I mean, a little aria. Um, With thee conversing, I forget all time, all seasons and their change, all please alike. Sweet is the breath of morn, her rising sweet with charm of earliest birds, pleasant the sun, when first... On this delightful land he spreads his orient beams on herb, tree, fruit, and flower, glistering with dew, fragrant the fertile earth and soft showers, and sweet the coming on of grateful evening, mild, then silent night with this her solemn bird and this fair moon, and these the gems of heaven in her starry train. But neither breath of morn when she ascends with charm of earliest bird nor rising sun on this delightful land nor herb, fruit, flower glistering with dew nor fragrance after showers nor grateful evening mild nor silent night with this her solemn bird nor walk by moon or glittering starlight without thee is sweet. So it's it's this catalog of all the how sweet and lovely everything is in paradise uh, and he says, but really, without you, Adam, none of it is really sweet. So we get, again, this beautiful lyric thing. And this is, uh, again, the, the, the dramatized contrast between Adam's very, um, again, kind of rule-bound speech and Eve's just kind of flights of poetic beauty. But then she comes in and ends that and says, but wherefore all night long shine these? For whom this glorious sight, when sleep hath shut all eyes. So you think, why are the stars shining all night when everything's asleep and can't see them? And Adam answers her. He says, uh, they shine to nations yet unborn, ministering light prepared. And he says, well, you know, eventually there will be, you know, nations who will see them. And he also says, line 670, they in part shed down their stellar virtue on all kinds that grow on earth, made hereby after to receive perfection from the sun's more potent ray. So there's some kind of, uh, of, of ray, rays, that the, the cosmic rays the stars have that are good for the plants and help them uh, uh, receive the sun's light better. And then he also says, millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen, both when we wake and when we sleep. He says, oh, you're forgetting there are all of the angels, and they don't sleep at night, so they can enjoy the stars and praise God for them. So he gives her these three reasons, you know, uh, all this. Now, this is an important 
or significant topic that will come up again. So notice this talk about the stars, this question about the stars will come up later. And then they retire again, hand in hand, into their blissful bower. And look around line 740. Handed they went, and eased the putting off these troublesome disguises which we wear, straight side by side were laid. Nor turned, I ween, Adam from his fair spouse, nor Eve the rites of mysterious connubial love refused. Whatever hypocrites austerely talk of purity in place and innocence, defaming as impure, what God declares pure, and commands to some leaves free to all. So Milton is going out of his way to point out that Adam and Eve go to the bower of bliss and they have sex. They're naked. They're there, uh, and there, w- there was some theological traditions that said that there was no sex before the fall. Uh, Adam says that's nonsense. That's part, of, you know, be fruitful and multiply is part of what they're here to do. Of course, they, there was sex, and he actually has a a, a, a little hymn starting seven fifty. Hail wedded love, um, and he kind of praises that. Um, so then the Adam and Eve fall after their they have their uh, connubial love. Uh, they fall to sleep lulled by the nightingales. And then we get the the angels in who are guarding paradise who go out looking for Satan. And the two that find him are Ethereal and Zephon. Now these are angels that uh, most of the names of the angels in uh, Paradise Lost were taken from the Bible. These two were invented by Milton. Um, and notice where they find Satan. This is around line 800. Him there they found, squat like a toad, close at the ear of Eve, assaying by his devilish art to reach the organs of her fancy, and with them forge illusions as he lists, phantasms and dreams. So Satan is there in the shape of a toad whispering into Eve's ear. Uh, And it says, or... And again, to, to raise illusions or, or fantasies, or if inspiring venom, he might taint the animal spirits that from pure blood arise, like gentle breaths from river pure, thence raise at least distempered, discontented thoughts, vain hopes, vain aims, inordinate desires blown up with high conceits engendering pride. So he's going to, you know... Uh, in her animal spirits, he's going to disturb and and put her, you know, kind of out of balance. Give her these vain desires. But Ethereal, with his spear, touched lightly, and he pops into shape. And uh, then we get some some of this great trash talk between the angels. Uh, Satan says, uh, line eight twenty eight, uh, "Know ye not me? Ye knew me once. No mate for you." There sitting where you, ye durst not soar. says, don't you know who I am? Oh, I guess you wouldn't. You were so low down in the hierarchy in heaven, you probably never even saw me. And Zephon replies, 835, Think not, revolted spirit, thy shape the same or undiminished brightness. Uh, it says, thou resemblest now thy sin in place of doom, obscure and foul. Um... So he's saying, yeah, you don't, you don't look nearly as good as you used to. You're fallen now. Uh, so they they take him in, and they're going to take him to Gabriel. 
And Gabriel and Satan involve, involve themselves in some more trash talk. Look around line uh, 878. Why hast thou, Satan, broke the bounds prescribed to thy transgressions and disturbed the charge of others who approve not to transgress by thy example? Um, he says, you know, why are you disturbing things here? You were, you, were, you were put in hell. Why aren't you there? And Satan replies, line 890, who would not, finding way, break loose from hell, though thither doomed? He says, what do you mean? It was hell. Of course I wanted to get out. Um, and he says that Gabriel, uh, who knowst only good, but evil hast not tried, and will object uh, his will who bound us, let us sure bar his iron gate. Let him sure bar his iron gate if he intends our stay in that dark durance. Uh, look, see, you you don't know like I do. You only know good. I know good and evil. And so, you know, if, and also if God wanted to keep us in, in hell, he should have, you know, put a stronger lock on the gate, which is actually an interesting point. Um, and Gabriel turns this around, uh, line 910. So wise he judges it to fly from pain, however, and to escape his punishment. So judge thou still, presumptuous, to the wrath which thou incurrest by flying, meet thy flight sevenfold, and scourge that wisdom back to hell. Said, do you think you were punished before? Just wait till God finds out now. He'll really punish you. He says, but wherefore, uh, wherefore thou alone? Wherefore with thee came not all hell broke loose? Is pain to them less pain? He's saying, well, okay, that's an interesting answer, but why are you the only one here? Why didn't all of hell come with you? Are you the only one who couldn't take the pain? And uh, Satan comes back at him. Still, line 8, 930, thy words at random, as before, argue thy inexperience what behooves. From hard to say and ill successes past, a faithful leader not to hazard all through ways of danger by himself untried. Says, you just don't know what you're talking about. I'm the leader. I have to pave the way for the others. Of course, you wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, I'm looking here for, you know, better a better place to live. And uh, again, Gabriel calls him on this. Oh, you're this great faithful guy. His line uh, 952. Faithful to whom? To thy rebellious crew? Army of fiends? Um, and he calls him a little further down, thou sly hypocrite, who now wouldst seem patron of liberty, who more than thou once fawned and cringed and servilely adored heaven's awful monarch. He said, oh yeah, you're the big patron of liberty? You were just as uh, uh, worshipful of God as anyone in heaven, and now you're uh, opposing him? He says, fly thither whence thou fledst, if from this hour within these hollowed link limits thou appear, back to the infernal pit I drag thee chained. And Satan says, line 970, Then when I am thy captive, talk of chains. He says, oh yeah, you're going to chain me? You and what army? Go ahead, try it. Um, and so we get to around line 975. While thus he spake, the angelic squadron bright turned fiery red, sharpening in mooned horns their phalanx, 
and began to hem him round with pointed spears. So all the angels surround him, got their spears pointed at him, and we get another one of these beautiful epic similes with pointed spears as thick as when a field of Ceres ripe for harvest, waving, bends her beaded grove of ears, which way the wind sways them. The careful plowman, doubting, stands, lest on the threshing floor his hopeful sheaves prove chaff. All right, that's a very interesting image. So the image of all these spears around him is like a field of, of grain, and that gives an image of the, the massiveness of it. Uh, but it also, notice it's going which way the wind sways them. They don't have any will themselves. They just go the way they sway them. And then the careful plowman. Well, who would that be in the metaphor? Would would that be Satan? Does this mean this is a, a field of wheat he's about to mow down? Um, the, the image is curiously ambiguous as to whether it's praising the angels or 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 criticizing them or showing their vulnerability or their power. Um, and the narrator tells us, line 990, Now dreadful deeds might have ensued, nor only paradise in this commotion, but the starry cope of heaven, perhaps, or all the elements at least had gone to rack, disturbed and torn with violence of this conflict, had not soon the eternal to prevent such horrid fray hung forth in heaven his golden scales. So they're about to be this big fight that could have not only destroyed paradise, but maybe the whole universe. I mean, these are, after all, angels. They're very powerful. Um, But then they see God sets his golden scales in the heavens, this that they all see. It says, In these he put two weights, the sequel each, of parting and of fight. The latter quick up flew and kicked the beam. So there are two things that are being weighed here. Parting, that is, Satan gets away, or fight, the angels and Satan fight. And the latter, the fight, flies upward. So that means that the the, the parting is heavier or weightier, weightier or more important. Um, now look at how Gabriel interprets this uh, this sign, line 1010. For proof, look up and read thy lot in yon celestial sign where thou art weighed and shown how light, how weak, if thou resist. Well, So what he's saying is that this is showing that you're weak, you're light, you're frivolous. We're the civ- heavy, serious, important ones. Um, but that's not exactly what the narrator is saying. They're giving different interpretations to this sign. Uh, now, in the confusion, Satan gets away, and they don't fight. But which interpretation are we supposed to have? Is, does this mean Gabriel misunderstood? Because the the narrator says it's the it's parting and fight that are being weighed, and. Gabriel says, well, it's Satan whose worth is being weighed, and it's light, and we're serious and heavy and important. Um, But uh, there's a real conflict there that the poem doesn't resolve. It it so often uh, leaves things a bit ambiguous. Um, Well, we'll leave that ambiguous there for now. For next time, 
I'd like you to read all of book five and then the last section of book eight. That's from lines 250 to line to the end, which is line uh, 653. Now, in book five, God will send down uh, another angel, Raphael, to warn Adam and Eve again not to eat the forbidden fruit. And Raphael also will tell them uh, a, a long story that tells us about the rebellion in heaven and Satan's fall. Now, before Raphael gets there even, Eve has a dream that was inspired by that uh, that uh, Satan squat like a toad whispering in her ear. And I want you, you to think very carefully about the dream that she has and what it means, what, uh, what significance it has, uh, and how Adam interprets the meaning of her dream. Uh, now, we see with when Raphael comes down, um, first of all, think about how he's described, what he, what he looks like, what kind of an angel he is. Um, and he tells them, uh, he kind of answers their questions about several things, and he begins to tell them in Book 5 the story of Satan's rebellion. And look at that. What is it specifically that triggers the rebellion of Satan? And how does uh, how does he uh, what kind of justification does he give to the angels who come with him and rebel against God? And also, you'll see another one of the angels that is with him is Abdiel. And look at what role Abdiel plays in Satan's rebellion. Uh, it's very significant. Now. We're going to skip book six, which is the war in heaven. This is where Satan's fallen angels fight with God's good angels, led by Michael. Um, and it's it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's a three day battle, and they 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 fight, and they they by the end they're throwing mountains on each other, and it, it's a very amazing thing. And then of course the uh, the sun comes out and just smashes the army without any without any effort really and cast them into hell uh, then book seven is the um, uh, the story of the creation we get the the story that's in the very beginning of Genesis retold and amplified in in uh, paradise lost and in the book eight, Adam begins to tell his story to Raphael. Raphael has been telling him things, and he's going to share back and tell Raphael. And he tells about his own creation, and he tells about his first meeting with Eve. And I want you to think specifically about that section and how it parallels Eve's description in book four about her waking up from creation and her first meeting with Adam and see the, the parallels and the differences there. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. It's a kind of a long section, but uh, and we're going to have to skip some because there just isn't enough time. Uh, but I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, if you had questions about it or comments, uh, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I will talk to you next time.